Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and I'm joined today, as ever, by Dr. Joe Boot and Nathan O'Black. Guys, welcome. It's good to be back together. Today, our topic is life. And it uh, it should come as a surprise to no one that uh, Scripture actually has a lot to say about this topic, uh, that uh, the Christian life and Christian doctrine is shot through with this idea. And what I want to do is narrow in on a few passages here throughout our time together uh, that deal with this issue of life and how we're seeing life defined and interpreted and understood uh, in the midst of the context that we find ourselves uh, in Ontario, at least we're in, in the middle of a lockdown that uh, we, well, we don't know when it's going to end. So Joe, I just wanted to start off by reading a passage from uh, the gospel of John. This is a well-known verse, John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So, Joe, just to to get us started here, I thought we'd talk about this concept of abundant life, or other translations call it, or say, life to the full, life in all its fullness. And there's a a lot to say there. What... uh, what does it mean to talk about life in all its fullness? So it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus uh, speaks of himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. He's resurrection and the life. And the contrast in John 10, 10 is with what the the devil comes to do here. There's a kind of a biblical antithesis set up. On the one hand, you've got the agenda of steal, so rob people, um, rob people of, of abundant life, steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, and so, you know, killing has that sense of finality about it. About it. Destruction can creep upon us gradually. Mm. And so this antithesis really is throughout all of Scripture, uh, these two directions of life, if you will, that we often talk about uh, on our program, that uh, the we all live in the same structures of reality that God has created that are governed by his law word, the believer and the unbeliever alike, but we're walking in the paths of life. It's the way of life. I mean, if you think about it, Psalm 1 is a summary of the message of the Bible. Blessed is the man. And this is the way of life, and then there is a way of of death. And, of course, Satan comes to advance. His agenda is the advancement of the way of death, stealing, killing, and destroying. And Christ contrasts his mission and his kingdom, if you will, with the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of darkness. So abundant life is, in Scripture, I think, about the redirection of our lives from that apostate uh, direction of uh, rebellion against God's law of life, his law of liberty, uh, 
that's the way of death and destruction. And it's the redirecting of our lives towards the fullness of obedience to God, which, of course, um, Christ as the truly obedient Son and our Redeemer, when we come into Christ, when we are redeemed, when we embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, we now participate in abundant life. So abundant life is not just about then following a set of rules externally. It's about a radical redirection and transformation of the human heart. It's what it means to be in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have been made or become new. So it's a path. It's a way. Uh, there's there's a path to abundant life. There's a way to life. Um, there's a way that seems right to a man, Scripture says, but its end is death. But but this way, this the way of Christ, the way of of life is the way of faith, it's the way of obedience. It's the life in Christ that is abundant life. That's why Christ could say, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. And of course, fleshing that out, working out the implications of that is the joy of the Christian life, of, of what does um, a redirection of obedience to God's laws and norms in every area of life means. And it means flourishing. It means uh, fullness of joy. It means righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the, that's the kingdom of God. Uh, it means the, uh, the experience of life in a way that opens itself up and out towards God, towards faith in God, towards um, a life in God that begins to see all things through this lens of creation, fall, and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, if we recognize that the curse, uh, which of course Satan was involved in that too, there was the original act of, of, of stealing, killing, and destroying. Of course, Christ says he was also a liar, and he was a liar from the beginning. So that's where that the, 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 the journey of death, if you will, begins at the fall, and then of course the curse is pronounced. Um, Christ comes to undo the effects of the curse uh and and therefore begins this this incredible reconciliation of all things to god so that's that's fullness of life it's the redemption of every aspect every part every square inch if you will of our lives and of this world to be redirected to god as it was intended so that we can know the all-surpassing joy, the support talks about the riches, the all-surpassing riches of what it means to to walk in the abundant life of Christ. Hmm. And and Joe, just quickly, uh, returning to Psalm 1, uh, if you live this way, you're the tree planted by streams of water, and if not for that, you're the chaff that the wind drives away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so an image there of, I mean, that's a very, it's a life-giving image, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's the image mm -hmm. of a a fruit tree, if you will, that's flourishing by a source of life, which is uh, water, over against a tree that dries up and shrivels, and it's it it it's the the dead parts are just simply blown away, mm. and um, that's the that's actually the vividness of the contrast in scripture. You know, you're to keep going with a an agricultural image. You know, mm. to be in the vine means to be mm. grafted into that life. To be outside, it is to be under the under under a curse. So, those th this image of abundant life of uh, of places of dryness of desert, um, 
becoming a place of springs, like the Valley of Baca being transformed. This is uh, the, the, the river that comes out, in, I think, in Ezekiel's vision from underneath the temple. Um, this is all about the, an image of life in Christ. And of course, the tree of life grows again in the new Jerusalem, which is, again, that picture of, of fruitfulness, of abundant life in Christ. So that's an important image, actually, Nathan, because it, it speaks also about the result in our lives, mm. that the outcome of being in Christ is this kind of fruitfulness in, in the different aspects mm. of, our, of our lives as, as human beings. Now, one important sense uh, amongst evangelicals of life is the idea of our spiritual life. Our, mm. our prayer life, our, you know, our life are in private relationship between yourself and God. And that's a, that's an important sense of life. And it's, I, I mention it because, like I said, here, as we record this in middle of January in Ontario, we're in the midst of a, uh, a mandated lockdown. And from several different uh, sort of corners, we're hearing, uh, pastors and other Christian leaders saying that, well, lockdown has forced us to emphasize our prayer life and our spiritual life. And, you know, thank God for lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I don't know, without, uh, without accusing you of, uh, <laughs> of not wanting to, to focus on your personal prayer life, Joe, mm-hmm. uh, what, do we, what do we make of this kind of sentiment that, uh, how great is it that we're being forced to to get into our prayer life. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, anything that uh, has a tendency to move in 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 that direction is reductionist. Mm. Uh, it's the attempt to reduce life and to say that uh, this domain of life, this given domain over here, is that much more significant or important than the other domains of life. Now, of course, um, no uh Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to walk with him um, could possibly promote the neglect of the Word of God or of prayer um and if this is a time where we are driven more to our knees then we can we can recognize that as something that God may want to do in our lives if we've a tendency to drift into prayerlessness um, but the notion that this is somehow overall broadly beneficial for life, mm-hmm. that we be uh, locked down so that we can be spiritual, um, is uh, merely, it merely exposes a, a, a radical truncation and reductionism mm-hmm. at work in, um, that's been at work in, for a long time in, in modern evangelicalism. It's kind of a state-mandated monasticism. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Which is interesting thought in and of itself. Hmm. Um, the 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 attempt to um, to define uh, to to narrowly define true life in terms of a certain narrow set of spiritual disciplines, to the neglect of education, um, social gathering together, which is life giving. Um, the that's the the loneliness and, dist- and if you will the destruction of the isolation to which people are exposed to not recognize that as sapping our life um is a serious mistake um 
spiritual life for a start off, Ryan, happens in community. Mm. Uh, we are part of the body of Christ and we are many members and one body. And so I think we have to be careful whilst I understand the sentiment, we have to be careful about um, rejoicing in the wrong things. Um, the abundant life of Christ was not in uh, blissful ascetic isolation, but constantly in the presence of his disciples and a community of believers who were living uh, life together, kingdom life together, and Christ healing the sick and preaching the word and raising the dead was was a manifestation of that kingdom life in a new community, a new humanity. And that's not an individualistic thing that can be done in um, isolated ascetic contemplation. Mm -hmm. And another, uh, an unspoken assumption in that, uh, that motive is that the, uh, these lockdowns are preserving in another sense, life, uh, mm -hmm. uh, another reductionistic sense of life as mere, uh, I guess it would be like biotic existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now this is, this is something I'm very interested in, as you know, and I think something that's critically important for us to consider. I think as that relates to the, um, the previous issue, I came across something a few days ago that um, actually Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out, the noted hmm. um, English preacher, very influential evangelical in, in Britain. He was a medical doctor too, wasn't and he? And he was a medical, medical doctor, yes. Um, in fact, he wasn't formally theologically trained, hmm. but his, he was trained in medicine. And uh, he actually... Um, what what you've touched on there, I think, again, which is something that we harp on about a lot as an institute, is the importance of a broad Christian world and life view. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about life today, we're, we're really talking about a life view. and Everybody has a view of life. How do we view life? How do we understand life? What is abundant life? What's fullness of life? You don't answer those questions without a religious foundation. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the Buddhist, uh, life is an illusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh it's it's a it's it's a it's a veil uh it it um there are no uh, the distinctions that we think we understand in life and even things like suffering disease viruses these are illusions and uh, the goal should be a kind of contemplation uh a cessation if you will to discover the oneness of all things and that suffering itself is an illusion hmm. um and the it's, hope of escaping this existence yes and and escaping that kind of existence into the oneness into hmm. into brahman that's that's the goal where where life itself or the idea of an of an individual life is uh disappears hmm. In Islam, you've got a vision of life that is essentially fatalistic. Inshallah, mm -hmm. uh, there's only one will ultimately in the universe. So there are life views. And Lloyd-Jones said, actually, very, in 1975, he was addressing a Westminster Conference. He said this, the Christian is not only to be concerned about personal salvation. It is his duty to have a complete view of life as taught in the scriptures. As far as the Christian is concerned, and that is what we are interested in now, 
We are not to be concerned only about personal salvation. We must have a worldview. All of us who have ever read Kuiper and others have been teaching this for many long years, end quote, mm. which I thought was um, uh, a fascinating uh, point because mm. it wasn't something that Lloyd-Jones overtly emphasized consistently, the That's importance right. of a Christian philosophy or a cultural apologetic or developed world and life view, but he clearly recognizes the importance of it there. And when we start talking about this whole notion of a reduction of life, that's when the issue of worldview becomes critical, that we recognize, well, what, what's the perspective? What's the underlying view that's driving um, the current uh, response uh, to the issue of life um, in, in, the, in the face of this pandemic? And um, what we're seeing, I think, at the moment is the manifestation of a kind of one-dimensional ideology I've called it in a recent uh, article that's going to be published quite soon, uh, lockdownism, hmm. um, which is a reductionistic. It seems impenetrable to counter argument. And it has that kind of reductionist view of life that you've talked about. Life is reduced to a kind of survival. And what we've got set up for us right now is, is this idea of a choice between life or death. So the goal, it seems right now, is survival. And uh, a, um, a British philosopher at uh, uh, Newcastle University in England, I was reading a piece by her uh, a week or so ago, and she said something very, very interesting um, uh, the, around this whole notion of reducing living being reduced to life or death when you when you try and reduce living to life or death in this reductionist way she says the uh, in that context the arts of life and i'm quoting now are lined up for censure on the side of death and what is called life is simply non-death a technical mm. survival program when they that is the arts of life are suspended for the purposes of survival we may take them back again when given the chance, but some will be lost forever. And the charms of others may never be recovered. And um, I thought that was particularly interesting because she's she's showing that the the what we've what we've really come to in our thinking about life right now is that life is non-death. It's a kind of way of negation. We're trying to define, define life as non-death in this negative sense. It ends up really with what uh, Cornelius Van Til called disintegration downward into the void. Mm. If you can't have something positive uh, filled with content to say about life, then everything is defined negatively. And right now we've really got this negative de definition of life. It's non-death. And so she went on to say uh, this, this kind of stark reductionism, reductionism of life to a biotic non-death. She said this, quote, far from being only non-death, life, real human life, unfolds in the face of death, comprising just the right amount of remembering death to give, uh, to give it its rhythm and urgency, and just the right amount of forgetting death to give it its joys and purpose. 
life, real human life, is not life or death. It is life and death, or mm. as the philosophers say, life toward death. That's Sinead uh, Murphy. Mm. So it's not. It's it's the fact that given our mortality, and especially given the fall and the curse, um, what gives life its nuance, its quality, and its significance is our recognition of our life in the face of death. And of course, that's part of what drives us to the gospel mm -hmm. and to Christ as the resurrection and the life, is that um, life is not uh, non-death. It's much more than that. And uh, if if it's reduced to that, all the nuance, all the issue of quality of life, the character of life, the life arts, what makes life really worth living, disappears. And um, in fact, C.S. Lewis actually grasped the same point in his uh, brilliant essay on the welfare state when he said, and I quote Lewis now, I care far more about how humanity lives than how long. Progress for me means increasing goodness and happiness of individual lives. For the species, as for each man, mere longevity seems to me a contemptible ideal, end quote. Hmm. And, and, and so I think, uh, Ryan, this lockdownism has is, is become almost an ideology of a reductionistic character hmm. um, that threatens real human life because the basic liberties that are essential to the arts of living have disappeared. Hmm. And so life is being seen as non-death, non-biotic death. Uh, and that's a way of negation and it results in emptiness and stealing and killing and destroying ultimately. Life um, disappears into nothing. It's the way of negation. And I think a great example of uh, exactly what you're speaking about, Joe, uh, in the news this week is David Williams, uh, who is Ontario's chief medical officer and in many ways uh, really running our province at this moment, unelected. Uh, he said earlier this week that the lockdowns we're currently under, uh, they're going to continue until COVID cases drop to around 1,000 cases per day. Um, we would see this as is an obvious instance of reductionism, setting that as the one metric, the one uh, mm -hmm. thing that we need to look to in order to overturn the lockdowns. And maybe you could speak a little bit about uh, the reductionism in, in that kind of statement. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, um, uh, this reminds me of, um, of uh, forgive me, another quote by C.S. Lewis that uh, <laughs> I've been uh, thinking about this week. Where We're he getting says, some real mileage out of him. Yeah, he's... Um, <laughs> Is some, one of his essays back in the fifties, I think it was published in the Observer, was was so prescient. It's like a prophecy for today. Um, he said this. He says, "Now I dread specialists in power because they are specialists speaking outside their special subjects. Government involves questions about the good for man and justice and what things are worth having at what price." And on these, a scientific training gives a man's opinions no added value. Let the doctor tell me I, sh I shall die unless I do so and so. But whether life is worth having on those terms is no more a question for him than for any other man. On just the same ground, I dread government in the name of science. That is how tyrannies come in, end quote. And that's my response to David Williams. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
which is I uh, he his opinion is of no more value to me mm-hmm. than of the opinion of the man down the greengrocer mm-hmm. uh, who's selling me my fruits and vegetables um, if he were allowed to be open because mm. he's not right now. Uh, this is why we should dread specialists in power because by its very nature, science or the sciences are lifting out one aspect of uh, the structure of reality, the various spheres of reality, and they're examining one aspect, logically, analyzing, if you will, analytically one aspect, um, and trying to understand it. But what you've got to remember is that when that is happening in the sciences, and here's a little bit of philosophy for us, um, what's actually going on is that we are abstracting, that is, we're lifting out of a coherence of meaning one element so that we can give it particular mm-hmm. attention but that abstraction is not real it's a th- it's an act of our thought it's an analytical thought act but you can't lift out the biotic element of life mm-hmm. and isolate it from all the other aspects of life as though you can deal with it in isolation in the real world mm-hmm. so what the a, a given science will do let's take physics for example it's going to analyze the physical properties very specifically but as we're sat here with our drinks and enjoying uh, an alexander keats um is it really that significant to us what the physic physicist will make of our sharing a drink together mm. how he may break it down at, to the molecular level and to basic physical forces uh, that may be interesting from an abstract scientific point of view for the physicist, but it's not real life. It's abstracted from the coherence of meaning. Hmm. And so that's the essence of the problem with a technocracy, with a, with a David Williams and other technocrats running the province and running the nation. This is why Lewis dreaded such specialists in power because he's speaking now outside of his special subject. He can talk as much as he likes to other doctors about the potential ways in which viral transmission might happen. But that isn't my real life in the world. Now, that's just one element, one very small, that's that's arrest, lifted out from the coherence of meaning in all the other aspects of life. And if you and ideologies occur when you get a maniacal focus on one aspect and to the exclusion of all others with a kind of imperious logical deduction, you decide that this idea must be the controlling factor mm-hmm. in everything. Yeah. And I know, Joe, uh, and I think this would be helpful for people, but you've spoken of this before. Whenever you see that suffix ism, mm-hmm. there's always something that has been abstracted um, and ultimatized, and it's it's a good practice to pay attention to that. Absolutely. The isms usually are indicative of the fact that one aspect of created reality, which is real, mm-hmm. has been isolated and lifted out and exaggerated to the point where it's regarded as a controlling factor. Now, this mm-hmm. is happening already with risk because I'm, I'm reading some of the uh, philosophers and thinkers and technocrats on this issue. And some of them are starting to talk. I think maybe when we dealt with the the Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset, I may have mentioned this, I can't remember. But they're starting to talk about epidemics and pandemics being the controlling factor in the movement of history. Mm. So there you have something being exaggerated as the controlling 
reality. Now, you know, when you when you think about the uh, biotic uh, reality of viruses and the physical properties that we're dealing with, and we're thinking about life, is a virus alive? I mean, we're talking about life. Actually, not really. That would be a, a, um, a, probably an, a, a mistake. Viruses themselves require a host cell to live and to survive. Uh, they uh, they they die if they if they if they do not have a host. So they they work by essentially co-opting the um, the machinery within the cell and start to try and uh, and manipulates it so that it can survive. Uh, so alone, isolated, a virus is a dead thing. What's even more interesting is one of the things that um, one of our fellows, Dr. Danny Strauss, uh, has pointed out is that to show the absurdity that, that of reductionism mm. is that uh, biotic properties, even physical, proper, uh, physical properties, when you get down to the molecular and the atomic level, who would say that an atom or molecule is alive? They're not alive. Nobody would say they were alive. Uh, but living things are made up of dead things. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a mind bender when you think about it. How is it possible that when you reduce the, uh, the physical to these most elementary properties that we're aware of, uh, we come down to dead things which then make up living things. Shows you how you can't actually reduce the biotic aspect to simply the physical. But in the same way, you can't reduce life and abundant life and the fullness of life to the avoidance mm -hmm. of viral material. And that's the, that's the reason why we're seeing this, uh, this almost an ideology that's being moralized to almost a sacred level now that you can't question it is because we've said life is non-death. It's not the art of living anymore. It's not conviviality. It's not our f friendships and relationships and associations and our laughter and our singing and our worship and our friendships and everything else. Life is the avoidance of viral material. It's non-biotic death. And of course, that is the destruction of life. That's of course why Jesus healed the sick. He didn't isolate from them. Mm -hmm. He didn't social distance from them. Well, and just thinking about this abundant life that Christ came to give us, it should be obvious that if we're living in fear, we're not able to experience that. And we had a, a very timely uh, email sent to us by one of our listeners uh, that goes very well along with the topic that we've been discussing. And I'm going to read just the, uh, the second half of her email. She writes... One question which I have not seen addressed by you is the absolute fear that not only the government is creating, but the church is also very much contributing to. Many voices in opposition to opening up the church are based not only on determination to obey government, but on fear of COVID. How will the church address this incredible, contagious fear that has been so damaging to the faith of believers? Mm-hmm. 
I love that line, contagious fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, it's cer- mm-hmm. certainly um, been more contagious even than the virus itself. Um, mm-hmm. The the certainly um, loss of before you can lose life, the the the, the, the liberty that make the arts of life uh, possible and therefore make life worth living. Before you can lose those, um, people have to be. Uh, ready to surrender them or to trade them away uh and it's usually because of fear so mm-hmm. fear becomes a very important commodity uh if you can create fear and terror in people you can control them and you can convince them to trade the arts of life uh for the promise of security of safety um, otherwise, people lo- won't trade those liberties. So, so fear is ultimately about a loss of perspective, uh, and uh, this is why we confront commands throughout Scripture to fear not, not mm-hmm. to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's a command. It's not a request. Uh, it's not a suggestion. It's mm-hmm. not even just an exhortation. It is a command. Uh, fear not. Hmm. So that makes. Being fearful a sin. Being fearful is actually a sin. Hmm. That's correct. Hmm. Uh, and we 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 fear when we lose perspective. Well, what perspective have we lost? Well, we've lost the perspective that God is in control. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the fact that we all, uh, from from time to time, get startled, um, or might have a natural and very normal recognition of danger. What Scripture is talking about there is being afraid because we're not in control. So allowing um, fear to go, I mean, you know, I, I don't like heights especially, right? But that that's not a sin. Um, but the, the fear that scripture is talking about is, is we're, gripped, we're gripped and controlled by fear because we feel we're, we're not in control and we've lost confidence that God is in control, that, that God is sovereign, um, that... Um, as Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. Every hair on your head is numbered. That's why anxiety as well is sinful because we're told to be anxious for nothing. I mean, Jesus said, look, how many of you by worrying mm-hmm. can change the color of a hair on your head or or add um, uh, anything to your stature? You can't change uh by worry and by fear and anxiety, any of those things. Um, but it's the it's the hand of the Lord that that provides for the sparrow and clothes the lily of the field. And so we're to have that kind of a trust and confidence and a rest in and rest in God to the point that we are commanded not to be afraid. And uh, I think it's there in um, 2 Timothy 1, 7, where Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound mind. And I think that was one of the first casualties. I think the, the uh, listener there has, has hit on one of the first casualties of this pandemic, even amongst Christians and in some of the churches. Uh, the first casualty was a sound mind mm-hmm. uh, of love and of power and of a sound mind. Instead, we've allowed ourselves to be carried along by a wave of fear, this ubiquitous narrative of fear. And it's actually a sin. It's sinful. When you see people screaming at each other in car parks because they haven't got a mask on, mm-hmm. 
um, getting angry and and uh, um, rejecting people because they walk into a church without a mask mm-hmm. on or pray without a mask on. That's not about love of neighbor. That's actually the a sin of fear, of of allowing fear to take control of our lives. And um, I refuse to be governed by that. Uh, we're all sinners, of course, and we're, we're all in danger of succumbing to a godless fear. Um, but we need to we need to resist that. We need to uh, recognize that our our times are in His hands. What is it that the psalmist says? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Mm-hmm. And it's it's these things that we rest in as believers that that neither height nor depth nor angel nor principality nor power nothing in all mm-hmm. creation mm-hmm. can separate us from the love of god mm-hmm. which is in christ jesus our lord that's mm-hmm. why we don't have to fear and so um the 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 the, the, the grip of fear on our culture that she's right to say has grabbed hold of many christians and as certainly its contagion has affected the church, must be resisted uh, by faith. Because the, the antidote to, to fear is not working up um, some kind of um, uh, human-wrought courage. It's actually faith. Faith and trust in God. Perfect love when we know the love of the overwhelming reality of the love of God for us, perfect love casts out fear. And I think if we love one another in the life of the church as well, we won't treat one another badly if we see somebody doing something that perhaps we're not quite so comfortable with. Um, perfect love casts out fear. So I think that's um, that's a critical aspect of the art of life, isn't it? To Hmm. to love one another, um, to encourage one another, to help one another, to bless one another, to serve one another um, as a manifestation of Christ's love towards us. And when Christ saw the unclean leper coming, ringing his bell, um, and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean, to the shock of many, he went over and touched a man. Mm-hmm. And I think the, if we're going to follow the example of Christ, of course, the scripture says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church so they can anoint you with oil and pray for you in the prayer of faith, make or make the sick person well. So I think it's these are the arts of life that if we, of abundant life, mm-hmm. that if we don't walk in them and succumb to fear, um, the result ultimately is isolation isolation not just loneliness loneliness can come about just through solitude but isolation is about the the creation of circumstances where people no longer can act collectively and the isolated people who have succumbed to fear uh, are powerless they're impotent because they can no longer act in concert as it were and that then becomes a very dangerous situation because then that's when tyranny comes in. When people can no longer act together because they can gather together, they can organize together, they can act in concert, they're isolated, they're afraid, they become suspicious of their neighbor. Uh, we become um, uh, suspicious of one another, uh, resentful towards one another, um, afraid of each other. Mm-hmm. 
because of fear, mm-hmm. the arts of life are then decimated because we are no longer together because life, of course, is about community as well. It's about the social aspect. And when that collapses and we're in isolation, not only do people become lonely, but they are powerless. And so God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, mm-hmm. and of a sound mind. And of course, the most basic and fundamental community is our community in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is manifest in the life of the church. That's our time for today, but fear not. We'll be back again with you next week. Joe, Nathan, thanks a lot for being here. Thank you for listening. This has been Worldview Wednesday. Uh, By the way, you can check out ezrainstitute.ca for more of our resources. We're also, uh, we've also opened registration for our summer programs 2021. Check that out on our website. There's plenty of programs for, uh, for all ages and stages. We'd love to, uh, to hear from you and to see you uh, later on this year. This is the podcast for cultural reformation, Worldview Wednesday, reminding you that from him, through him, and to him are all things. We'll see you next week. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.